and welcome to another episode of Unlearn and Relearn with Megan and Wilson. Welcome back, friends. Okay, so this week's episode is kind of we called an audible. We had another topic, but then we had some very uh, important news that happened in the last couple of days, so we changed our topic. And this week we will be talking about, in our main topic, we'll be talking about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, her life, her legacy, some of her most important work, and then we'll talk about her death and what that means for the Supreme Court, what that means for the country, what that means for the election. There's a lot of implications. What now? now? What's happening? What are we going to do? There's a lot going on. A lot of people are saying stuff, so we have to see what's going to happen here in the next couple of weeks. We'll definitely be keeping an eye on this as it moves forward. But um, yeah, Um, rest in peace to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She lives an amazing life. And in a few minutes, we'll get into our main topic, which will be her life and her story. Um, But let's start off with our highlights of the week. Um, So, Megan, you can go first. What is your highlight of the week? So I wanted to talk today about a story that has, I mean, it's sadly no surprise to us, but ICE has been forcing hysterectomies of immigrants. So there was a story that came out. Um, Well, let me just state that what I mean by it's no surprise is the, the fact that there's any sort of violence or abuse that's going on within ICE is no surprise. Yes. That has been going on time and time again. Pretty much ever since. ACLU has just been nonstop. Yeah. You know? So uh, the most recent story was uh, a whistleblower complaint uh, reported out of Irwin County Detention Center in Georgia. So it was actually a nurse um, that did it. She was represented by the Project South and the Government Accountability Project. Um, but she came forth, uh, came forward and say, to state that they were, you know, forcing steriliz- sterilizations. Um, and that <laughs> it's really sad that a lot of the women that were coming out of these, um, just had no idea either what was going on, what had happened, yep. or why it had happened. And, you know, forced sterilizations are definitely, like, again, a tool of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. It's been used time and time again um, against ind- indigenous people, immigrants, yes. black and brown people, people with disabilities, intersex people um, in this country. And it's just another reason for us to get uh, abolish ice yes you know um and then i saw also i think it was uh yeah it was earlier today i saw that ice confirmed the 20th death in detention this year um which is the deadliest year since 2005 and the third deadliest in the agency's 17 year history what the this is so if it's not one thing it's it's another. another yeah um, yeah, that organization was created out coming out of, um, I believe it was 9-11, and it has been one of the most destructive organizations for, it's got to go. 
Well, not to mention 81% of people in ICE detention are in facilities owned and or operated by a private provider. So meaning that somebody is making, you know, corporations are profiting off of the misery and violence. That so it's not really, it's not necessarily centers. ICE that, that is running these detention facilities. It is a private corporation that's running these detention facilities and they quote unquote have to report air quotes to ICE if something happens, but or ICE is supposed to be monitoring what's happening at these, but there's so many of them, so many different companies doing detentions that of course something like forced sterilizations and hysterectomies can be happening. And ICE really doesn't even know that it's going on because what kind of eye it's more are they of keeping like these, on these, these, these buildings facilities? are op are yeah. are owned and operated by private, but the but the the staff are the ICE workers. So yeah. a lot of these, like the abuse and stuff, is re reported by the the ICE detention staff workers. Oh, so, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. So it's the it's, private contractors that are committing the abuse, and some of the staff, some of the ICE staff, could be the people reporting it no, or trying to. No, the actual to, physical space is privately owned. Yes. The people in. The physical space are private. Are private. Are I, I, from ICE. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. So. Okay. Either way, it's a mess. Yeah, you know, it's just like, it's just a lot. So look into it. Look into all the different things that that ICE has done. Um, they have a you long make your history. own decision. They have a long yeah. history of you, doing you things. You can make that your own decision. Yeah. They shouldn't be doing. So yeah. Keep an eye on that story. Well, definitely, because that story is developing at this point um, based off of an investigation that um, a few Congress people are trying to launch and to actually figure out what happened with these uh, hysterectomies. Are, were they forced? Were they this? I mean, the allegation is that they were forced. I mean, but... I just can't honestly fathom a reason why it's being done to begin with and why we think it's okay to force it on anyone. Well, the thing um, is, is that it's not only is it being done, but it's being done to women that are, that are very quickly afterwards being deported. And so if a person is being, if a woman is being deported, there's no real record of her and her health or anything. So you do this hysterectomy, you take out these reproductive organs and then very soon after the woman has moved on to <clears throat> whatever country she supposedly came from, so you can't really hear from her or understand what the situation was. So God knows how long this has been going on and how Almost many like women are- like a way are to hide it is what you're, Yeah, exactly. What you're at. Spread it out all, all over the world. These women are nondescript. They're in countries where they can't be tracked or traced mm. and you did it and now it's like, yeah, so. We yeah we definitely we keep an eye on that. Um, please keep an eye on that. So moving forward, my highlight of the week is going to be about the Aurora, Colorado. Mm. Um, I believe it's their um, city council has the city's um, the city council on Monday this past Monday, banned the city's emergency responders from using ketamine until an independent investigation into the death 
of Elijah McLean is complete. So they so, did a temporary ban. So this story is is a follow-on to the death of Elijah McLean and mm -hmm. all of the fallout that is happening. I think that what we what we learned in the the months after the outcry is that the state took over the investigation and then um, multiple uh, officers and and first responders are being investigated. The hospital is being investigated. And so one of the things that they decided to do was the council voted unanimously to temporarily stop paramedics using this powerful sedative, yeah. which Aurora paramedics injected into McLean after he was violently detained by police last year. Yeah. So um, there's questions about how the drug contributed to his death. And those questions remain unanswered because the Adam County Coroner's Office could not determine the cause or manner of his death. Um, so we're we're just going to keep an eye on this to see where it goes. Obviously, there's an investigation it's happening. It's a start. Hopefully, what they end up doing is either completely banning ketamine use or they limit it to very, very, very strict uses under certain very serious circumstances right. um it should definitely not just be something that the paramedics are running around just injecting people with all the time because right. so makes... easily giving him double i think it was almost double the amount that they should have given him. yeah so it's like how how are you so easily able to give someone double the amount of what they should have like if you're if you're someone who's in um, who has that type of drug in their possession and they are, I guess you could say someone in, in the power of using that, mm -hmm. like you should be aware of how to use it, of, of the effects of it and like of how to administer, administer it to other people because that's what you're doing. That's well, the, literally the, your whole job. Well, the thing is, is that like they're, they're trying to get compliance a lot of the time. So when they do use the drug, they have told themselves it's safe, it's safe, don't worry about it. The, 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 they put here that, oh, his body had a therapeutic level of, of ketamine in it. What is a therapeutic yeah, level? Who determined? such a weird word for that. I yeah. do not like that at all. Those <laughs> things do not, like, you Who cannot describe that? the level of, of ketamine as therapeutic. That's ridiculous. First off, who determines that? What Absolutely. study have you done that shows and what a therapeutic level is? How many people have you tested on? Wouldn't that vary on everybody yes, per person? Yes, per person. Because I'm going to go ahead and say <laughs> the amount for me and the amount for you is probably different. The therapeutic <laughs> amount for me could potentially hurt or kill you. Definitely. You know? <laughs> so like, that makes absolutely no sense. But, yeah. you know, it's not. none of it makes sense. This is, this is the to keep an eye out further for. militarization and the further... You know, um, just turning the the police, and then now they brought in uh, uh, the the first responders as an arm of the police to be able to do things like this. And it's good that this story is coming out because now we're knowing that there are police forces all over the country using ketamine, using sedative drugs because they don't know how to do their jobs. They don't know how to detain people. They don't know how to get a situation under control so the only thing they know how to do is stab the person with with a, a needle and what happens when it not it's not working fast enough and you give them another dose and you give them another dose you're gonna be if not permanently brain damaging or damaging people they're killing people i'm right. assuming 
I'm going to assume, based off the only information I know, that's probably what happened, but we'll wait for the investigation, quote unquote, to be complete to see what the state comes up with. But definitely this gives us an opportunity to say his name, Elijah McClain, and also say that we are still keeping an eye on justice for Elijah McClain. This is a, a nice update and it's a heartening update, but that, that, that stuff has to be banned um, all the way around and permanently. So moving forward in moving into our main topic again, Let's get into it. Our main topic for today is Ruth Bader Ginsburg, life, legacy, death, and what comes next. Um, yeah, I guess the, the way that we're going to kind of start, <laughs> you know, the way that I, I, I kind of wanted to set it up is we're just going to kind of go through like a little timeline. Yeah. We're not going to, we're, we're going to hit some, you know, some things that she did. We're not, obviously we don't have all the time in the world to go over everything. Yeah. But we're just going to go over some of the, some cases that um, we felt were, you know, good to, to make note of. Exactly. Um, and, and mention the fact, you know, the, the wide array of um, topics that she fought for. So, um, you know, just to start, you know, Ruth, man, one of the only one of only nine women in a class of more than 500 at Harvard Law. The idea that she got into Harvard is pretty damn impressive, <laughs> especially at the time. At the time. And then wasn't it in Harvard that they the dean you said the dean or was that There was in... a no, that's Harvard. Okay. That's Harvard. The dean had invited them. Go ahead. The dean invited the nine women right. to a dinner at his family house. And during the course of this dinner, he asked these nine women, and I'm, I'm assuming this is probably in the 60s or the 70s, mm -hmm. he, or 50s or 60s, asked yeah. these nine women, um, why are you here taking the place of a man that could be going to law school? <laughs> So that gives you sort of a... So that's the start. That's the start. <laughs> <laughs> so this sort of gives you a, a, a tipping point or a tipping off point to let you know that what we're about to talk about is a lot of instances in which there was just overt, direct discrimination in which they just said it to her face. Yeah. Um, so as we as we move forward, she was I don't know if you have this. Oh well, yeah. I don't see this in the notes, but I'm, we're going to come back to this. But yeah, she was fired from one of her jobs because she was pregnant, and they told her that that's why they fired her. It's because she was pregnant. Um, but yeah, so that I just wanted to jump forward to that because I wanted to like say lay the groundwork that what this woman was able to do, um, I think was was genius. And very jujitsu, uh, uh, using the force <laughs> against yeah. against the law to get it changed against the norms and the standards. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Yeah, she definitely. Yeah, she's. We'll get into it, but at Harvard, I know it's so overwhelming. We're yeah. like, okay, which one do we go to? Um, but after after Harvard, I think right around that time, that was when her husband um was dealing with health issues that was around the time that she was pregnant with her her first child 
Um, and then I believe she didn't finish at Harvard. She actually transferred to Columbia and mm -hmm. ended up graduating at the top of her class. Mm -hmm. um, and then went on in 1963, she went to Rutgers Law School and as, as a teacher. So while there, it was one of her, her bigger, or I guess her, her first um, cases, the mother brief, mm -hmm. um, as they call it. Um, Reed versus Reed. So basically, the execution of her son's estate instead of her uh, ex-husband. So the constitutional issue was whether a state could automatically prefer men over women. As so, executors of estates. Right. Yes. And so this begins what I call the jujitsu tactics that she would take in order to make sure that women were yeah. treated the same as men is that she would take cases specifically in which men were being treated less than women to show that if if you can't let if you if you won't by law allow men to be treated less than women why would you allow women to be treated less than men and it is it was a brilliant strategy that she executed um, in various different cases that she took and various different causes that she would take on Absolutely. to show that yeah you know, the the Reed versus Reed, um, executor of their son's estate instead of her ex-husband. Um, that doesn't make, I mean, when you think about it, it makes no sense. Whoever the person is that's the executor, that's the person that should be able to do it, whether it's a man or a woman. Right. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously it makes sense to us now. Back then, for some reason, that was, you know, that was the that law. Was that the was just the way it was. That's how it was. So it's... You know, she's she's the you one that buy came a car. in and was like, hey, that you, ain't right. You couldn't buy a car or a house or get a loan without, if as you a were a woman, woman a without woman. a man as either the person who was signing for it or was your, the person who was there with you. <laughs> you couldn't just show up and be like, I want to buy a car. Where's your husband? Mm -hmm. I want to get a loan. Where's your husband? You know, it's so simple. We think about it today. But in the late 60s, early 70s, these were the fights. Right. Yeah, it's kind of, it's crazy. So in 1972, it. she was the founding director of the New Women's Rights Project. And then With she... the ACLU. And she accepted a job as the first female tenured law professor at Columbia. Yeah, so all at the same time. So she's now a, a law professor at Columbia. And then at the same time, she was working with the ACLU as the director of this new uh, women's rights project. So they're mm -hmm. consistently going out there. I mean, if you don't know the ACLU, please look them up. Yeah, the ACLU is, is there. They're constantly out there making yeah. sure that our rights are preserved. If you even, <laughs> if you even think you're going to do something in a state that isn't right, the, LCU, they is, the ACLU is right, right there. there. To file that, <laughs> to fi file that lawsuit and push it through and get it, mm -hmm. and, and and make you have to go into court and justify the thing that it is that you're trying to do, yeah. and yeah. Um, and then during that time, she you know from that she was the first female tenured professor there at Columbia Law. Um, it says here she. She, um, as when she was a part of the ACLU Women's Rights Project, she argued six gender discrimination cases before the Supreme Court between 73 and 76. I think mm -hmm. before we started, I had told you that 
um, that they knew who she was on the Supreme Court. Yeah. So by the time she got to be, which we're getting to next, when she became an appellate court judge, mm -hmm. all those people up there knew who she was because she was constantly bringing cases. And, and you have to be a very uh, brilliant, scholarly-minded person mm -hmm. to even be allowed that a case that you're bringing goes before. The Supreme Court is so picky that you could have a case that you think should go before them and they'll be like, no, we're not going to hear it. And they kick back cases to lower courts m way more than they take cases to, to hear. So the fact that she got five in front of the Supreme Court in four years, no, in three years, that is, that, that's, that's more than one a year. Yeah. The Supreme Court only meets to hear a case twice a year, which means that she was going in front of the Supreme Court in the, in the spring and then coming back in the fall. Some people only go before the Supreme Court one time in their entire life. She was going there sometimes twice a year. Like it's, it's yeah, it's unbelievably impressive. impressive. And it says she charted a strategic course taking aim at specific discriminatory, discriminatory statutes and building on each excessive victory. She chose plaintiffs carefully, at times picking male plaintiffs to demonstrate that gender discrimination was harmful to both men and women. Yep. So that's why I said she would flip it. Yeah, just like, that's like the case uh, Weinberger versus Weisenfeld. So she represented a man whose wife, the principal breadwinner in their family, died, died in childbirth. So now this husband, he, her, the husband's left with a baby, a newborn baby, mm -hmm. no wife, mm -hmm. who was the breadwinner. So the husband sought survivor's benefits for, for you know, to care for his child. Mm -hmm. um, but under the then existing social security law, only widows, not widowers, were entitled to such benefits. So again, like you said, taking those cases where, um, <laughs> where we have to, we have to say, okay, hey guys, you're being oppressed right now. You guys don't like that, right? So maybe we should fix this now because when everybody else is being oppressed, y'all don't listen. Yeah. So let's let's show you these cases where men are being oppressed and yes. now you'll pay attention. Yes. And what it what it does is because the strategic course is that the strategic uh, the, the behind it is that when you win a case like that where you prove that men are equal to women, and that a man should be able to get survivor's benefits just like a woman should be able to get survivor's benefits if her husband dies. What you do in legal in the legal world is you set what's called a precedent. Mm -hmm. So that means the next time anybody for any reason argues before any court in this country, they can state that case is saying, well, the Supreme Court held that men are equal to women by saying that a man can get survivor benefits if his wife dies. Yeah, they did. Okay, so if men are equal to women, then women are equal to men. Oh shit, <laughs> right, of course. So all other cases that were happening all over the country in lower courts that maybe no one even knew about, were they were winning these cases because she went and did this one case and set what was called a it's precedent a at the time, which means that other cases don't even need to go up that high. Just based off of her, the, mm -hmm. the court's decision on her one case helped so many other people to win their cases at lower courts all over this country. 
So, I mean, it's just, that's the, that's the thing about arguing in front of the Supreme Court, the reason why you have to be a, great, a good legal person to do it. Because if you win and the court sides in your favor, you change law. Not just there, but law that, that you don't even know you're changing. You don't just affect the the, the situ- one case. The one case. You yeah. affect so many other other cases that every case after that. Not that haven't even come up yet. Yeah. Things that aren't even every like, other case. Any, yeah. Any case after that. Any case after that of discrimination of even if it comes close to looking like that, they're like, well, if men are equal to women, women are equal to men. Ruling in your favor, woman, move forward. You can do whatever it is you were trying to do. And it's like, thank Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And you didn't even know that that's what you were, the reason why you won your case. But you won your case because of what she did 20 years ago, 30 years ago, you know. So that's the impressiveness of what she was doing at the time. And facing all of this oppression and all of this this sexism and misogyny, but still staying focused and pushing forward and winning these cases. I think she argued six and won five. That's a really good record. Yeah, I think it was um, going back. This is just like a random um, little tidbit, but I think it was when she was in uh, when she was in Columbia Law School uh, as a teacher, as a professor. When she mm-hmm. was pregnant with her second child, she wore clothes that were bigger to hide the fact that she was pregnant until they were until she signed the next year's contract. Oh. <laughs> so that they couldn't fire her. Oh my god. Because she was pregnant. Yeah. So it's like she was doing, you know, this is all the stuff that's going on. You know, her husband's her husband's sick. She's she has she has kids. She's also going through law school. You know, she's she's mm-hmm. also having to study. She's also you know teaching what have you. Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting. Um, yeah, it's really it's really crazy. So this then, one, um, yeah. So like, um, I just saw this one. I wanted to talk about it. Um, for some reason. There was okay, so she filed an amicus brief and sat with the council at oral argument for Craig versus Boren, nineteen seventy six, which challenged an Oklahoma statute that set different minimum drinking ages for men and women. Why were there different minimum drinking ages for men and women? I don't know. <laughs> for the first time, the court imposed what is known as intermediate scrutiny on laws discriminating based on gender, a heightened standard of constitutional review. Her last case as an attorney before the Supreme Court was was Duren versus Missouri, which challenged the validity of voluntary jury duty for women mm-hmm. on the grounds that participation in jury duty was a citizen's vital governmental service and therefore should not be optional for women. So these are all things that we're talking about right now that seem so out of this world and antiquated to the person who's listening to this probably like, like wait, what? There was a time where women could get out of jury duty? Yes. There was a time where women could just be like, I'm a woman. I don't want to do jury duty. But then she was like... It was more like um, you don't get to do jury duty unless you literally come in and file something stating that you specifically wanted want to, to do, do yeah. jury duty. Yeah. Otherwise, you don't get to do it because yeah. you're a woman and we're not going to have you come in. Like, why would we do that? Why would we listen, why why would would we listen we to you? So, yeah, that's how it went. So it's, it's interesting because now we see juries full of women, full of women of all different races and colors right. and stuff like that. But it's interesting when you think about how uh, uh, juries were made up 
prior to these cases being well it's like we this is why we wilson and i talk about doing the work yeah rbg did the work she put in a lot of work throughout her entire career and we're not gonna sit here and say she was perfect by any means nobody is but she did a lot of amazing things that like wilson said we to kind of take for granted today. No, we, we don't, don't even think we, about we these we, things. We 100% but someone had to put in the work to, to get, get this st- stuff done. Yeah, I remember when I did jury duty about a few months ago before uh, COVID hit. Um, yeah, there was women of all different races and gender. Everything was there. And it didn't even hit me. I didn't even have the idea to think that there was a, there was a time in which only people who were allowed on juries were probably white men. And you're talking about all these cases that were decided in which the only people who they would bring in, jury duty now is seen as something that nobody wants to do. Like nobody wants to do jury duty. But back then it was considered civic duty and it was a thing you kind of wanted to do because you got to sit on, you, 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 you figured that you would get to sit on important cases. Um, but to think that 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 we wouldn't even hear from half the population when it comes to deciding people's lives and fates and money being distributed and court decisions we would take away an entire half the population's perspective on how a case should be decided and we would just deny them from the ability to weigh in when a lot of these decisions would directly impact them it yeah it it's it's something we take for granted but you know it, it somebody like you like you said earlier somebody had to fight somebody for it somebody had to do the work somebody had to do the work yeah well that gets us into so now we're in the 1980s president jimmy carter named ginsburg to the us court of appeals for the district of columbia circuit Mm-hmm. And then over the next 13 years, she would amass a record of something as a centrist liberal. Centrist liberal. Then, moving on to 1993. One thing you have to understand, it. I'm going to stop you right yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. President Jimmy Carter nominated her on April 40th, 1980. He was not the president by the time November came of that year. So in the last year, because we're in the last year of, of a presidency right now, and when we were in the last year of the last president, he was not allowed. Obama was not allowed to nominate. We're getting back. We're going to get We're going to get there. But I just wanted to, I'm looking at the date, and I'm like seeing some eerily, eerily similar, similar similarities to what we're in right now. Jimmy Carter lost the election in, in the fall of 1980, but when he, not, he, he was allowed to do what he did, and nominate Ginsburg to the seat in April of 1980, which it which says that the court that the Senate was working back then, which is something we're going to get to. <laughs> the the process was working back then, right? Because he was allowed to do what you do, which is when you're the president, you nominate somebody for for the bench. Um. Yes. Okay. Were well, you going to say something about her? Well, now we're at 1993. So 1993, Bill Clinton nominated her to the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and she won by a 96 to 3 vote. So she, like you said, people knew her. People, people knew, knew what was exactly going on. Exactly what she was. They knew what she, she stood mm-hmm. for. They knew like um, all the cases that she had been a part of. So she kind of just won them over. So it's interesting that we look at her as this liberal nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, when Clinton nominated her, right. she was known as a hardline centrist. That's what she was known as. Right. Centrist that was the liberal. way she she wasn't even known really as a liberal liberal. She was known as sort of like a but also like what our liberal. definition of liberal from nineteen eighty and nineteen are, are gonna be very different. Very and different. even nineteen ninety three and then today different. are very, very different. Very different. So yeah. So but yeah. like in in the terms of like what we know it today, it would be more of like a moderate at the time. A moderate at the time. Right. But the court has moved so right that her moderate is now liberal left. Right. <laughs> because the court has just gone so right. Even by conservative standards, the court mm-hmm. has gone uh, further right. Right. Um um, and then she's so in total she served 27 years which is absolutely amazing um, she's the second woman after Sandra Day O'Connor to serve. now wait let me just let me just pause for a second because I said that's absolutely amazing it's great because of all the work that she does mm-hmm. but it is something to, to think about y'all that Supreme Court justices serve for life or until they retire. Until they decide to retire. Exactly. I don't really love that at all. Yep. At all. At all. Yep. So I don't want to say it was great. Mm-hmm. It's great that she did a lot of great things. But it is something for us to think about. We, we are still, to this day, dealing with the... The... Um, the fact that yes these men and women when they're put on the court they serve for life so it if you're going to serve you have to be strategic about when you retire so some people were saying and maybe she should have retired when obama was the president so he could have put four people because he ended up putting two on the court himself and he was about to put a third person on the court and the, and the Senate stopped him from doing that but if she had decided to retire back in during Obama's administration Obama would have been able to appoint four justices to the Supreme Court so it's strategic some of them do pass away I think it was Scalia who passed away in all while he was in office right and um, I don't remember the last person that retired. Um, Sandra Day O'Connor. Sandra Day O'Connor retired. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, Kagan is there, and uh, Sotomayor is there, and those women went in young. So we're gonna be old before they even think about retiring. Like you and I will be old <laughs> before those two. Think about retiring. It is an appointment for life. It is probably the only one of the few positions that you have you can be appointed to 
and you have to you have to be there for life so um <laughs> yeah no it's yeah we won't get into that too much yeah. but just think about it y'all um <laughs> but yeah while she was you know while she was in the while she was in the supreme while she's been a supreme court justice she's done amazing work mm-hmm. it's been you know everything from cases uh, having to do with gender discrimination to abortion rights to search and seizure to international law I mean it's really across the board she was definitely a huge advocate for obviously women's rights but mm-hmm. um, that wasn't the only thing uh, that she, th- those weren't the only cases that she you know stood stood her ground for so I said I said that I have to amend it that Justice John Paul Stevens also retired from the bench and when he retired that left Ginsburg as the senior member of what's sometimes referred to as the court's liberal wing mm. the court splits five four along ideological lines and a liberal justice were in the minority Ginsburg often had the authority to sign authorship of dissenting opinion because of senior, uh, because of her seniority she was a proponent of liberal dissenters speaking with one voice and where practicable presenting a unified approach to which all the dissenting justices can agree um, uh, uh, sometimes the dissenting opinion because I, I used to be in the, in the weeds about the Supreme Court for a number of years I used to I used to watch Supreme Court uh, argue argue the argument period, um, because they only allow cases to come before them for a short period of time in the spring and for a short period of time in the fall. And that's it. And then it takes them, I'm sorry, decisions come out in the spring. So you argue before them early in the year, and then it takes them months before the decisions come out. Then you argue before them in the fall, and it takes some months before the So that's it. If you don't get before them you have to wait till next year. It's You don't get to go before the Supreme Court all the time. So I said that's why it's so impressive that she was able to argue before the Supreme Court so many times in such a short period of time. Um, yeah. In 1996, the the United States versus Virginia, Virginia Military Institute's yeah, male-only admission policy is violating the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. A state actor such as VMI could not use gender to deny women the opportunity to attend VMI with its unique educational methods. Ginsburg emphasized that the government must show an exceedingly persuasive justification to use classification based on sex. And then one of the ones that is the most, we're going to t- we'll talk about that one next, the one that's the most prominent that's on people's mind because it happened within the last 10 years is that um, Ledbetter versus Goodyear, a plaintiff, a case where the plaintiff Lily Ledbetter filed a lawsuit against her employer claiming pay discrimination based on gender under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. In a five to four decision, the majority imp- interpreted the statute of limitations as starting to run at the time <coughs> of every pay period, even if a woman did not know she was being paid less than her male colleague until later. That doesn't make any sense. But this was how the court got around it to not have to rule that it was gender pay discrimination. 
And so what did what did uh, Ginsburg do? She put out a thing saying that the Senate should just pass a law that says that women get paid the same amount for the same work as a man. And that's what they did. <laughs> and so um, in 2008, the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act, making it easier for employees to win pay discrimination claims became law. She was credited with helping to inspire that law. So um, that right there just shows you that at the time before Obama was president, she was using her weight of the amount of work that she had done to move the needle forward even if it was on something as I'm not getting paid as much as a man and I'm suing okay now that you are doing that let's see if that's correct and then let's work through it and if it is so then you get restitution okay. and I think uh, that you know obviously did you have another thing that you wanted to no we kind of I mean there's so many cases we could sit here abortion and talk rights. about cases all day long but y'all just you know you guys Search can and do seizure do international law and, and look up the other cases um, if there was like anything specific like I said there was like different uh, different things that she that she went after so so she, do the research yes. but um, now I kind of want to, we want to get into like what, what now? So she's, she passed on September 18th mm-hmm. on the eve of Rosh Hashan, uh, from complications due to pancreatic cancer. Which she beat, um, I think she beat it three times. Yeah. She's, a, which is just, yeah. Yeah. That's that in itself. Yeah. Um, so Ginsburg's death. Her death really gives Republicans the chance to kind of tighten their grip on the court um, with, you know, with another appointment from from Trump so that the conservatives would then have. So right now it was at the five, four. Mm-hmm. And so then it would turn to a six, three majority. That would mean that even, you know, a defection on the right would have would leave conservatives with the vote like yeah. automatically pretty much automatically so the first thing they're going for obamacare yeah we already know that yep um so I honestly think you know, it would be very difficult for them to go after roe v wade because they'd have to have a case that came before the court that would that could challenge the validity of roe v wade and have to work its way up through the system and it might take two or three years for it to get there but that's the that's the Clarion call, clarion call that people are putting out there saying Roe v. Wade is under attack. Roe v. Wade is under attack. Um, I, I tend to believe by list, but just the research that I've done and some of the, the light research that I've done on the court that they're not too keen on overturning over uh, um, long-standing precedent. It would be a, a total departure. And if they did that, they would almost in effect make themselves irrelevant because the Senate would turn over, the House would turn over, and then they would pass in a, a law making abortion legal. I think that people like to say, well, Roe v. Wade is gonna get overturned. If Roe v. Wade got overturned, it would wake up half the country, the country, part of the country that doesn't vote. And I think the court's pretty much okay with keeping things the way it is. That's the reason why they keep striking down Obamacare. People, they can think, oh, if we just get Obamacare up there, it'll, it'll they're not, they're not in favor of overturning law that was passed like that. 
I mean, they will take pieces away from it. They will say, oh, that part's not good. That part doesn't work. They're not going to overturn all. If they did, then we would just pass Medicare for all as a country. And then we wouldn't be, we would make an effect to make the court irrelevant. Um, and I don't know if they want to be irrelevant. If they want to be just nine people that no one cares about anymore, then they'll take these, you know, legislative things that it's not their job. <laughs> so we'll see. We'll see what they decide to do. Um, but yeah, sorry I went off on a tangent. But yeah. Um, yeah, I mean. But we're moving into <sighs> what the next. So she passed away. We're, we're in mourning right now. And I don't even think as of this uh, broadcast that her her uh, body has been laid to rest. I think it's still in state at this point. Um, and we're already talking about how to who is going to replace her. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that gets us to and, our, you know, it's it's absolutely no disrespect. Even even she what it's it's so sad because at 87 years old, like. You don't, like, no person should have to be worrying literally on their deathbed about, about the their country weight. and, like, the world, you know? Like, well, it's just kind of, it's so crazy and just so freaking sad. The, the, the interesting thing is when you, when you are this much of a legal mind and mm -hmm. you're this brilliant of a person, and you're this useful to not only a court, but to a nation, your responsibility does become the country's responsibility. And you are tied to the country. That is the burden of being this good at what you do. Nothing is free, everything has a cost. Even when you're brilliant, you still have a cost to bear. Your cost when you're as brilliant as, as, as Ruth Bader Ginsburg was, is now the country depends on you to live you know which is what was happening over the last three years the country yeah. was depending on her to live mm -hmm. and, and and i don't know if she took on that weight or if she even understood the implications maybe she did it was in statements that she put out which said that she full well understood mm -hmm. what her death would mean mm -hmm. to women's rights to abortion rights so now we move into um, what's going to happen going forward with Mitch McConnell. He is the majority leader of the Senate. And back during Obama's administration, when a court, when a vacancy needed to be filled, he said something to the effect of we should let the next president determine who the next Supreme Court justice is. And so he did not allow for a hearing or even he didn't allow for a hearing on uh, Trump's a pick. Um, and so Obama's. Oh, I'm sorry, on Obama's pick back in back in 2016. And now he's completely that was just four years ago. But his, he said he said the American people should have a voice in the selection of their next Supreme Court justice. And that was nine months before the election back then. Therefore, this vacancy should not be filled until we have a new president. And here we are. Forty two days away from election. Exactly. And 
tables seem to be turned all of a sudden. And it doesn't, oh, it's not the same thing. It's not, it's literally not the same thing is what he's saying now. He's, yeah, he, <laughs> it's so ridiculous. I just, it's, it's laughable. Yeah. It's and, laughable. and when we talk about Mitch McConnell, what we're talking about is a person who's um, addicted to sheer power. Ever since he's been the majority leader, he has been doing things in the Senate that have basically weakened the Senate's ability to do its job. And he's basically turned the Senate into a non, a defunct, non-functioning uh, 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 body of government in which it is only concerned with doing things that benefit the party, not benefit the country. So getting rid of the filibuster rule on judicial nominees, now then getting rid of the filibuster rule on all nominees means that, that you can just ram through judges. And these are the people who will 10, 15 years from now, because like what happened with, with, with Ginsburg, she was put on the, on the appellate court in 80, and then Bill Clinton chose her from that court in 93. What they're doing right now is they're cramming all of these Republican judges onto the court so that 15 years from now, when there's another Republican president, he'll have all of this judges to pick from to put on the Supreme Court in like 2035 or 2033, if we're even a country by then. <laughs> if we're still a country by then. That's what, that's what this, is, this is all about, is basically setting things up so that the court is stacked with, with Republican judges to choose from, who will all be for the things that the conservative uh, right wants. And so this is, this is what the fight is now. The fight is to vote. The fight is to make sure that we put pressure on those, those Republican senators to not vote for a nominee not just republican oh democrats also yes because mm -hmm. we did have a conversation about how mm -hmm. there'll probably be one or two democrats that'll try to vote totally so we have to put pressure on these republicans and these democrats to not vote for a supreme court justice until the next president is put in to off the next president is in office right so if that happens to be Trump, so then so be it. Then but so be either it. Way, we just have to live it with it. It needs to wait. It needs to wait. Either if way. If it needed to wait in 2016, still needs then to wait it needs now. to wait now. Most definitely needs to wait now. now Nine I, months versus 42 days. I mean, no freaking question about now, it. Now, I know I'm contradicting myself because I mentioned earlier that, that <laughs> Carter nominated mm -hmm. Ginsburg in the last year of his presidency. But we didn't have the Senate that we have now. If Obama had been allowed to put his justice on in 2016, we wouldn't be having this conversation. It would suck. It would be horrible. It would not be the best thing. But we would just have to all live with it. Right. But because of the hypocrisy that happened four years ago, we'll be damned if we let this thing just happen this time around without putting up a significant fight. Okay. So... And these elected officials and take a look. Yeah, I was just I was their just jobs are on the them. line now. Like uh, 
some of the some of the um, people that that Trump has. Oh, some of his potential, shortlist potential nominees. There's Amy Coney Barrett, serves mm-hmm. in the Seventh U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. Amol Tabor, a member of the Federal Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit, and I'm so sorry if I'm butchering these names. Uh, Barbara Lagoa, uh, Chief Just Chief Judge on the Florida Third District Court of Appeals, and as a Florida Supreme Court Justice before being confirmed by the Senate. Let's see, Raymond Kethledge, he's a judge um, of the Federal Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit, and then James C. Ho. He is a circuit judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. Thomas Hardiman, Federal Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit, Philadelphia. William H. Pryor, Jr., Chief United States Circuit Judge for the United States Court of Appeals. And there's like a whole bunch of information that we'll post on our IG and like go back up to the one. Go back up to the one for Florida. That's the one that everyone's kind of eyeing. The woman, Lagoa, mm-hmm. from Florida, because putting her, nominating her would do Trump two things. Number one, she is ideolo- ideolo- ideologically in line with Republicans who want to do all sorts of things like get rid of abortion and all these things. But also because she comes from Florida, it'll help. It might help him win the state of Florida in the election. So that's the person that people are kind of saying is on the short list of the short list. Him and then the first lady, her and then the first lady I think you you mentioned Amy because, because she is a little bit more moderate than Lagoa is, but and might do what we talked about earlier, get one or two Democrats to vote for her. So those are, I believe, his two strongest the ones that he's definitely choosing. He well, will Trump not choose. said that he would nominate a woman, but yeah, of he's course, not like... He's um, definitely not choosing a man. That's not going to happen. So those okay. two women, one of them is like, I believe, a Catholic fundamentalist. I think that's what Lagoa is. And then the other one is sort of like more moderate than her, which might, if you throw Lagoa out there, everybody, everyone's like, oh my God, she's so bad. Then this one just doesn't seem so bad. But this one's just as worse as she is. She just doesn't talk about it. Right. You know, and everybody goes, oh, no, not her, not her, not her. Okay, it's well, then her. behind the scenes. That's, that's sort of how the switcheroo works. So um, as we move on, we will say, I will say that we definitely need to keep an eye on all of this. Do your research. Find ways to pressure your senator if you happen to live in a state in which your senator may be one of the ones that could uh, support a Trump nominee. Um, know who these people are. Go read the list of all of his nominees and know who they are. Know what the cases that they ruled on. Because when they get on the Supreme Court, that is not the time to know what they did in the past. The time to know where they've ruled and how they've ruled against and for black and brown people, marginalized communities, women. The time to know about that is now, not, not later. So um, that's, that's going to be our main topic area. We covered a lot, kind of touched on a lot of different parts. We just really encourage you to do your research and stay informed.
So as we move forward, we'll move into the say their names section. And for me, I'm going to start with my name. My name is uh, going to be Troy Davis for this week. The story of Troy Davis hit me very um, profound because the 21st is uh, seven, no, eight years. No, it's not eight years. It's nine years since he was executed by the state of Georgia. And his story is that is very devastating and it is not, it is just so heartbreaking. Um, he was an African-American man convicted of a 1989 murder of a police officer in Savannah, Georgia. McFit. Um, McPhail was working as a security guard at a Burger King restaurant when he intervened to de defend a man being assaulted in a nearby parking lot. During Davis's 1991 trial, seven witnesses testified that they had seen Davis shoot McPhail, and two others testified Davis had confessed to them, confessed the murder to them. There were 34 witnesses who testified for the prosecution and six others for the defense, including Davis. Although the murder weapon was not recovered, ballistic evidence presented at trial linked bullets recovered at or near the scene to those at another shooting in which Davis was also charged. He was convicted of murder and various lesser charges, including the earlier shooting, and was sentenced to death August 1991. Davis maintained his innocence up to his execution. It took them 20 years he was on death row. Davis and his defenders secured support from the public, celebrities, human, right, human rights groups, Amnesty International, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, prominent politicians and leaders, including former President Jimmy Carter, Reverend Al Sharpton, Pope Benedict XVI, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, former U.S. Congressman from Georgia and presidential candidate Bob Barr, and former FBI director and judge William Sessions called upon the courts to grant Davis a new trial or evidentiary hearing in July 27th, September 28th, and October 2008. I'm sorry, July 2007, September 2008, and October 2008. Execution dates were scheduled, but each execution was staged shortly before it was to take place. In... It went through all of these motions, and at each turn it was denied. And on September 21st of 2011, the sentence was carried out through lethal injection. There were many different things that came up. Um, Seven of the of the witnesses who said they had saw him do it later recanted their testimony or said that it was because of police coercion that that they um, that 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 they testified, but each and every time the case was um was 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 denied and it was moved forward. So 
I just wanted to bring this up because when when um, Troy Davis was executed, his last words were to his attorney. He said, the struggle for justice doesn't end with me. The struggle is for all the Troy Davises who came before me and all the ones who will come after me. I will not stop fighting until I've taken my last breath. So in 2000, I'm sorry, in 2019, December 26th, a, a story was written in which the Innocence Project talked about his story. They insisted on executing an innocent man despite so much doubt around the case. If those seven witnesses were credible enough to put my brother on death row, then why weren't they credible when they recanted? We have a situation in which the state of Georgia murdered an innocent man, is what most people now contend. This case has some far-reaching effects because it talks about the validity and the usefulness of the death penalty. And it is basically turned from this case, a few states outright banned the death penalty because the outcry of injustice was so high. I believe the state of Oregon was one of those states that just completely did away with it. They're like, we're not, we're not executing people anymore. And so when we say the name of Troy Davis, his story was very tragic. And, but it has those implications in which now we have to have those conversations about, is the death penalty something that we should be doing as a country? When you find out that of a thousand men on death row, somewhere close to 25 or 30 of them are innocent which means that we're executing innocent people to keep this system of justice, quote unquote, injustice going. So I wanted to bring this case up. I wanted to talk about it because Troy Davis's life matters and we cannot forget what his death meant and the implications going forward that death penalty cases and the death penalty definitely needs to be looked at and we need to figure out better ways of of executing justice and not just executing innocent people so that's my that's my say their name what's yours Megan so I wanted to talk about N Natasha McKenna today um, she was this was a case back from back in 2015. So she passed in 2015, February 8th of 2015. Um, she was a 37-year-old um, black woman who died in Fairfax County, Virginia, while in police custody. So essentially, um, basically from the age, I believe it said 12, from the age of 12, she was diagnosed with uh, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder and depression so this is something that she's gone through like mental um uh just mental illness instances and has had a lot of has had to go through a lot of situations where um you know she might have had 
am I trying an episode or mm-hmm. you know she's had multiple episodes throughout her life so anyways McKenna 37 years old she was being held at the Fairfax County Adult Detention Center um, by the Fairfax County Police Department and the Sheriff's Office uh, due to an outstanding outstanding warrant issued over her suspected attack on a police officer so the officials had notified Alexandria police which was another uh, city in that area whom they expected to pick up the suspect Um, but there was an unexplained week-long delay in their response and then Fairfax decided to to transport her um, because of her mental condition they said that her she was like deteriorating essentially and they wanted to transfer her to a different center that would actually have the resources to be able to to take care of her mm-hmm. um that were you know that were required so uh due to the previous assault charges against her when McKenna was taken out of her cell she was restrained so she had her arms behind her back in handcuffs and she had her legs shackled and then they also had a spit mask placed over her head mm-hmm. so <clears throat> Essentially what happened was a sheriff's deputy used a stun gun to taser her four times because she wouldn't bend her knees to sit down in a wheelchair. This is a woman who was 130 pounds, five foot four, so same height as me, about, about basically me. You, you, her hands are behind her back in handcuffs her legs are shackled she has a damn spit mask on and you mean to tell me that you needed to tase her four times for for what yeah so um because she was classified as mentally ill a specialized team was attempting to ready her for transport and the team the team was made up of six members of the sheriff's emergency response team Shortly after being tasered, she suffered cardiac arrest and lost consciousness. She was resuscitated by emergency responders while being taken to Fairfax Hospital, where she was placed on life support, and after five days, she was determined to be brain dead and was removed from life support. Pronounced dead on February 8th, 2015. So again, another instance where, like, they arrested her for an outstanding warrant, you know, for a suspected attack on a police officer. But this is also someone who has a history of schizophrenia, bipolar, depression. So just uh, the whole situation is just not, they didn't, they didn't take, this is another instance of why we need to defund the police. Mm-hmm. They're not well equipped to deal with patients that have mental illnesses and situations like this happen where she wouldn't sit in her wheelchair. Yes, that seems like so crazy to someone like me and you maybe, to someone that, you know, to someone else, but she had schizophrenia and bipolar Mm -hmm. and depression. You have to think about how all of these things are working within, within a person, especially when they're under high stress Mm -hmm. Um, 
So yeah. Yeah, it's defund the police. Let's say her name Natasha McKenna. Let's say his name Troy Davis. This Natasha is why McKenna. we keep Troy Davis doing this. We we talk about this, and I think when we get to this section, I think one of the reasons why we have included this as one of the things we talk about is to keep driving the point home about w when you say. I, as the sheriff deputy, needed to tase a 130-pound, 5'4 woman four times for noncompliance. What you're saying is, is that I, as the sheriff deputy, do not know how to get people to do what it is that I would like them to do. And I have been conditioned and socialized to not think of you as a person. Exactly. That's what it really is, is there's no consideration for oh, the future. other person's humanity. There you go. That's the word. Humanity. They're no just, consideration. They're just a non... Just like Trump says it all the time. These people are, are animals. These people are, you know, criminals. These people are this. And it's dehumanizing them so that the whatever they're doing, whatever they're doing in this case, this person tasering the... Uh, Natasha McKenna four times is justified because uh, you know we've they're, dehumanized them it doesn't yeah, matter they're not even human they're not yeah. even a person they're an, they're an animal they're not they're just a subject to you and she was a, a suspect she was she was you know a suspected attack on a police officer so can, you can only imagine how they were treating her mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so say their names Natasha McKenna say their names Troy Davis. Davis. Let's move on to our activist highlights. All right. We'll take things up just a little bit. So mm -hmm. activist highlights for this. Let me see. Wait a minute. Yes. Hold on. So I wanted to talk about. You want to go first? Yes. Yeah. Please. I wanted to talk about the Womi app. So um, someone that I met from a women's conference uh, maybe like a year and a half ago. Her name is Melissa Mel. Uh, followed her for quite a while. She's a creator, um, designer. She is really passionate about um, women entrepreneurs and um, and really uplifting them and their brands and their and their businesses. And she just recently um, created this app, the Womi app. So it's a directory of women and minority-owned small businesses. Um, brands, they have tons of tons and tons of different brands. So it's, a, it's basically like a hub for you to go to and be able to search these, these different um, you know, small, small businesses and actually be putting your money into, you know, actual people and not big corporations mm -hmm. um and it's also just a space for for everyone to connect um in that way so i thought it was just i've always thought it was really awesome she did it before she did the app she, every week on instagram she would really uh shout shout an uh, a business or, or brand out mm -hmm. um you know Post their post their IG information. Tell us what the company's about. Post some of her favorite products from them, and then now it's an app. So it's just I think it's really awesome um, 
and really important for us to be supporting each other and it's awesome to see women you know as a woman it's awesome to see (laughs) other like women supporting each other and really like lifting each other up because ultimately like melissa it's not you know melissa's talking about other women's brands yes and that's amazing that's amazing and any 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 effort that is being taken to uplift further expose highlight and direct resources people eyeballs customers and ultimately money to um women women of color um marginalized women and their businesses is something that we should definitely be talking about and something we should definitely be uplifting and and letting people know so so check out the app if you look in our in our uh our um description the the link to her instagram will be there and potentially a link to the app will also be there um well the instagram will be there and they have you know all the stuff on their page so y'all can y'all can go do that (laughs) and so um we didn't we didn't plan our activist highlights we don't really tell each other who our activist highlights are (laughs) going to be but um but my activist highlight for this week is going to be about another uh uh individual by the name of janaya or janaya future khan and we are familiar amazing individual with future which is the name she goes by or he or they go by um the the uh the name is the uh is they um, the name that they go by is Future, and Future is a powerful activist in this space. They are the one of the ambassadors for Black Lives Matter in the city of Los Angeles. It says on the website, JaneaCon.com. Jenea Future Khan is a storyteller, activist, and futurist. Future has become a leading voice in the global crusade demanding social transformation, justice, and equality, and currently serves as the international ambassador for Black Lives Matter. The co-founder of Black Lives Matter Canada, Future is a writer and lecturer, has been featured in Vogue, The Cut, and CNN. So I wanted to talk about this person, this human, that whenever they step to the mic during our Black Lives Matter rallies, they light the crowd on fire. And there have been plenty of quotes that I've taken taken (laughs) from them and have said, these, they speak so directly to my soul. They, um, one of the things that they say is, Love brought you into, or uh, hate brought you into Mm. the street, meaning the anger towards the thing that happened. Or the actual act, the hateful action, the the hateful act and the anger that that hateful act brought out of you. So hate or anger brings you into the street to protest, Mm. but love is what brings you back Mm -hmm. because we are connected. We are a family. Mm-hmm. Those who see injustice happen and decide to speak up about it are a family a lot of times that they don't know that they have family, that they are connected. Mm-hmm. 
And protests, marches, and rallies are a way for you to show up and see your family. See those that are of like mind and see those that are in the struggle and in the fight with you. And so um, I love to tell this story. I love to talk about people who are out there every day doing the work, doing the hard work of organizing mm -hmm. and, and directing resources and people towards critical needs that communities may have and are the ones that are on the front line serving as well-spoken, articulate, uh, smart, intelligent leaders and representatives of everything we want this movement to be. And so when Future steps in front, she's representing or they are representing all of what we hope to be and what we want to be as far as the representation that we are looking for in this movement. So I just wanted to um, highlight Future. I want you guys to go and follow uh, uh, Future on Instagram. The link will be in the description box below. And and listen to her speeches. She has a, a Sunday sermon, which, which they talk about topics and they, and they give a sermon on Sunday. So check it out, follow and support. Yeah. So moving into our call to actions, speaking our of, call to actions. I mean, always, be, always, always, always call part of the call to action is to follow and get informed on our activists that we mentioned yes. on our on the people under our say the names on um, go read section. their stories go yes. read their stories go learn about them um but this do you know, more research on ruth bader ginsburg because yeah, i think we today, only covered like a like the sl a slice off totally. the top of her life from now until election day though honestly it's, we're going to talk so much about voting, if we, even if we're not talking about voting. So make sure you're registered to vote. Are even you registered you to think, vote? Even <laughs> if you think you're registered to vote. Please go check. Double check, triple check, like quadruple check if you have to. Mm -hmm. Make sure you're registered to vote. Spread the word about getting others to register to vote. Make sure you know, you know when... It is that you need to vote. So, like, are you doing mail-in ballots? What, are you having to ask for your mail-in ballot? Or do mm -hmm. they just get sent to you? When do you have to ask for the mail-in ballot? You need to know all of these things. You need to know all of these things. And as always, 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 um, you know, this is... We, we want you guys to continue to, to do the work. And we also understand it's so hard. So we also hope and encourage mm -hmm. <laughs> um, everyone to, you know, take care of yourselves, get enough sleep, make sure you're eating right, uh, resting, digitally detoxing at some point in your day, um, taking care of yourself. Go listen so. to our episode about activism and self-care. Self -care. That's yeah. a great episode where we spend uh, almost an hour talking about some of the ways in which you can uh, be in this movement and, and support yourself so that you have that, that balance happening but yes definitely but as always friends we thank you so much for joining us this this is 
we love this work. We love meeting every week. We love talking, having these conversations. Uh, we hope as we continue to do them that they'll become more interactive. If you guys have questions, feedbacks, challenges. topics, yeah, challenges, topics you want to talk, about, uh, you want us to talk about, you know, <laughs> send, us an, send email. us an email. Unlearn, um, relearn. Unlearnrelearn.podcast at gmail.com. I was like, I'm going to get those. And if you guys want, you know, any sponsorships, any advertisements, definitely reach out to us. We're we're, we're looking, you know, we're always open to it. Mm -hmm. So so reach out, friends. We love you all. Thank you all so very much, as always, always. For hanging with us as we unlearn the BS and relearn the good stuff. All right, guys. We'll see you guys on the next episode next week. Take care of yourself. Bye, friends.